96-7W. Classified top secret subject is... Hey, kids! Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. your weekly trek through comics old and new that only have to attract our attention to make the show. Yes, we're that random. I am Andrew Leyland, the Captain Kirk of this Enterprise, and I can hear you groaning audibly at that. But alas, my regular co-host, the Charlie X of the podcast, Michael Leyland, is not with us this week. Yes, that clumsy introduction was a way of telling you, the eagle-eared amongst you, that this is going to be another Star Trek episode. Yay! Now, the reason for this is that we're going on holiday for three weeks, and I've allowed for that, doubling up on some recorded sessions, but I completely forgot that the week we get back, we probably won't be bothered doing an episode, what with being jet-lagged and on the low that comes with the high of being away. I also think that one of the reasons we've built up such a really cool audience is that in addition to being given shout-outs and promo times in other people's shows, and a huge thank you to every single person who's mentioned us on Facebook, played the promo, or just give us a shout-out in any way, the fact that we've not missed a week since doing this is another reason I think we've built up the audience. And I'll be honest with you, I'm quite proud of that. I really think that maintaining a steady presence, along with word of mouth, is how you build an audience. So... We could have taken the week off after we got back, but I didn't want to do that. And being as waiting for Michael to do notes is sometimes like waiting for Godot, I wanted to come up with a show that I could write, record, and edit in an afternoon. And I like Star Trek, and I like comics, but which is better? Now, long-time listeners will recall we did a Trek episode back in the day when we covered Star Trek Annual 2, but a lot's happened in the universe of Trek since then. One, J.J. Abrams' reinvention of the original cruise adventures seemed to have gathered speed as a rollicking good adventure and the way to do revamps correctly. It's not really a position with which I agree. I find the 2009 Star Trek revamp to be a clumsily plotted action-adventure pop conflict rather than the smarter end of televised and movie sci-fi that the original show was, but it seems to have had some measure of success with a mainstream audience. Secondly, Abrams and co. have currently started filming their second big screen adventure, which I remain cautiously optimistic about, at least until I hear that they've cast somebody to play Khan and then I'm out. I mean, really, what was up with that? Every single fan wanted to bring back Khan. Why? What possible good could come of that? How is that, bringing new blood to Star Trek by just reheating old meals and serving them up as new? Really didn't get that, and I just hope they don't follow that approach. Anyway, so it was with some trepidation that I approached the new IDW Star Trek comic book series. IDW had had a successful run with their Trek stuff, so when they announced they would be doing a monthly Trek comic with adaptations of old episodes but in the new movie timeline, I was a little bit concerned. Robert Orkey was acting as creative consultant, but being as he wrote the first movie, which I've already mentioned, I didn't find anywhere near as smart as some of the best of the TV tracks, I was even more concerned. Now, I could have just ignored this, as I have other Trek iterations I've not found to my tastes, but... But, the original Trek 
is probably my all-time favourite television show. I grew up with those guys and I have such fond memories of the show and watching it with my grandparents and then the movies happened. And this feeling of growing up with me was one of the things that attracted me to the shows. To this day, when I think of Star Trek, I think of the original series. And then there's everything else. Nothing from the subsequent series really came close to the original's mixture of proper sci-fi, Shakespearean melodrama, character-based humour, self-effacement, and, yes, silliness. The other shows all took themselves far too seriously for my liking, and none of them have ever matched the interplay that existed between William Shatner as Captain James Kirk, Leonard Nimoy as Spock, and DeForest Kelly's Dr. McCoy. However, I was browsing eBay one day and a place in space had the first issue for a whole pound cheaper than in the shops, with free postage even, so I took the plunge and bought it. Now that's quite a saving when you consider this was a three ninety nine book, which I think was selling for something like £3.15 in Forbidden Planet, so shaving an extra quid off that was what made it enticing. Issue number one came out on September the 21st, 2011, almost exactly 45 years after the episode it's adapting first heard. The initial comic book acting starts with the second Star Trek pilot, but the third episode to be heard in the US, where No Man Has Gone Before, which heard in the United States on September 22nd, 1966. Over here in the UK, we did show this episode first on the 12th of July, 1969, on BBC One. The comic has an excellent cover by Tim Bradstreet, which looks like a photo of the crew posing dramatically. Kirk and Spark in the Starfleet emblem and the Enterprise flying below. There's a gorgeous starscape around the figures. As befitting its setting, the characters are all now drawn to look like the new cast, a kind of NCC 90210, if you will, but it's really quite an excellent cover. At first I thought it was a photograph. It came with six, yes, six other covers. Cover B by David Messiner was a half Kirk, half Spock deal, similar to how Steve Ditko used to draw Spider-Man when his spider sense tingled. Um, it's, it's not very good, to be honest with you. Whilst there were four retailer incentive covers that all joined up to be a picture of the new cast and a retailer incentive signed edition of the regular cover. I don't know who signed it. Doesn't say in my issue. It was written by Mike Johnson, with art by Steve Molnar, and based upon a teleplay by Samuel A. Peoples. Colorist was John Rausch, letterer was Neil Uatake, and the editor was Scott Dunbeer. Creative consultant was Robert Arkey. Uh, instead of the usual synopsis, I will be talking through both the comic and the TV show it adapted, comparing and contrasting, pointing out the differences, that kind of thing. The comic opens with Scotty dictating the log entry and immediately gets off on the wrong foot with me when he stumbles over the date and whines about nobody ever listens to these things. See, this is one of the things that rubbed me the wrong way about the movie. Scotty's not a comedy relief character. He was a serious engineer in the TV show, and Simon Pegg seems to have been cast to give the character a comedy makeover, replete with amusing sidekick. <sighs> bah, humbug. Anyway, Scotty's fixing the ship after its encounter with Singularity at the end of the 2009 movie. Instead of just calling the captain on the many intercoms and communicators they have lying around the ship, he decides to wander up and see him. So it seems to me that even in the 23rd century, people will skive off work just to go and walk along a corridor and look important. Kirk is up in the Dossing About Room, also known as the Recreation Centre, playing real chess. 
with Gary Mitchell. In the episode, Kirk is playing chess with Spock and they bump into Gary on the corridor on the way up to the bridge. We learn that Mitchell and Kelso, both important players in the TV episode, were drafted in by Kirk just after the events of the movie. Because of the readjustment of the timeline due to the events of the film, we learn here that Mitchell and Kelso were a year above Kirk at the Academy. The episode's a little bit more ambiguous about this. Mitchell may be a bit younger than Kirk, as he refers to being in Kirk's class, as if Kirk was the instructor rather than a classmate. And no mention is made of at all of Kirk having any kind of friendly relationship with Kelso. He's just another crew member in the TV show. Also in the show, Kirk beats Spock at chess, but here, Mitchell beats Kirk. So I don't know whether that's showing us that Mitchell's smarter than Spock. By definition, I don't know. Molnar makes some interesting artistic choices here. Um, whilst the characters now all look like their NCC 90210 counterparts, Mitchell is drawn to look like actor Gary Lockwood, who played Gary Mitchell in the episode, although he's probably best known uh, for his role in 2001 A Space Odyssey. They're summoned to the bridge by Spock, who informs them that they have intercepted a message from the SS Valiant which disappeared over 200 years ago. Kirk asks Spock to tap directly into the message beacon, whereas in the show, they beam it aboard. In an interesting nod to continuity, the beacon looks exactly the same as it does in the television show. The TV show is a lot more dramatic and engaging in this part of the story. The emergence of a 200-year-old black box recorder is presented as a much more dramatic event in the show than it is in the comic. This is something that I noticed about later iterations of Star Trek. The unknown was just another day at the office for the sequel series, whereas in the original Star Trek, danger was always just around the corner. In fact, the TV episode makes a big deal of voyaging to the edge of known space, whereas the comic doesn't even mention that that's what they're doing yet. There's some subtle differences here as well. Mitchell relieves Sulu, who isn't a bridge officer in the TV episode, and of course, McCoy was not in the original episode at all. The next big difference is that Dr. Elizabeth Dana, a huge part of the original story, is completely absent here. Spock starts listening to the data from the black box recorder, and the dialogue is very similar, albeit a lot sparser, than the TV show. We learn that the Valiant had something go wrong, and there's mention of ESP, and then an order from the ship's captain to self-destruct his own vessel. Kirk gives the order to continue to the edge of the galaxy, warp factor one. Here, both TV and comic are the same. The Enterprise approaches the barrier at the edge of known space. Uh, as an aside, I watched the remastered version of this for this recording, and A, I was really impressed by how well the show held up, and B, the remastered effects are really good. Um, some of the CG Enterprise modelling doesn't quite have the heft that the real model did in the original episodes, but they did a good job with them, I was quite impressed. Uh, as they cross the barrier, the Enterprise is buffeted by the electromagnetic storms from within the barrier, and Kirk orders the Enterprise out as she sustains heavy damage. Again, the TV episode bleeds this scene for all the drama it can, with both Denner and Mitchell hit by... something. In the comic, obviously only Mitchell is hit by the unknown force and not even being in the story and Spock and Uhura engage in some unprofessional behaviour on the bridge uh, this was something else that I disliked about the, the 2009 movie I'm not against Spock and Uhura having a relationship Spock frequently acting like a lovesick 15 year old that I am against as they help Mitchell up his eyes have turned to silver with the ship crippled, repair crews work around the clock. Mitchell seems to be fine and is reading everything he can get a hold of. McCoy can barely keep up with it. 
Spock deduces that all the crew members who died in the attack caused by entering the barrier had higher than average ESPER quotients. Again, as an aside, there were nine crew members affected in total, which is a nice touch as this is the same number as in the episode. Kirk remembers that a psychologist, Dr. Dana, was supposed to join them at Aldebaran. Maybe she could help. McCoy replies that she elected not to join, and we learn that she and McCoy had a relationship that presumably ended badly. Um, now, this raised a bit of a red flag with me. I've never been in the military, but my granddad has, and I always thought that you went where you were posted. Dana couldn't just turn down a posting because she had a breakup with the chief medical officer on the ship, could she? Wouldn't they just say to her, suck it up, deal with it, get on with your job? I didn't understand that. It seemed to be that they were explaining that Dr. Dana wasn't in this retelling, but they didn't really need to. She's not in it. We get that by reading the story. Move on. Anyway, Kirk, Spock and McCoy visit Mitchell, who sits juggling objects mentally. McCoy can find nothing wrong. Mitchell tells Kirk that the impulse engines are a bit squiffy, and a brief fracas occurs when Mitchell throws a temper tantrum, somewhat similar to a petulant teenager, and he shoves McCoy around. Kirk orders him confined to sit bay. Later in the briefing room, Scotty tells Kirk that the impulse engines are indeed damaged and that it'll take a starbase to fix the damage. Chekhov, not present at all in the episode or indeed the entire first season of the original Star Trek, says that they could make the remote outpost on Delta Vega, a lithium cracking station that may have some resources they could use. In the show, it's Spock who mentions Delta Vega. The centre section is the biggest diversion from the original to the comic. There's none of the character development present in the show left in the comic. In the episode, we get an awful lot of Kirk's backstory about how he was a very serious and well-read student, how he rode the other students hard to get the best out of them, that by nature of the rebooted Kirk still being only in his early 20s, we don't have here. The 09 movie also subscribes to the public perception of Kirk as a womanising risk-taker, rather than the actual character as established in the show. Yes, Kirk took risks, but mostly when he had no other choice. He never took the endangering of his crew lightly, and, yes, he had an eye for the ladies, but he was an intelligent and well-educated man who studied an awful lot of military history. This Kirk in the comic doesn't have any of that experience or knowledge in this story, which ultimately leads to a completely different denouement. The absence of Dana also hurts the story, as we have no one to really care about, as her reactions and interplay with both Mitchell and Kirk drive the narrative in many respects. Interestingly, the TV show Dana says that Spock has worked with Mitchell for years, implying that although this is the first episode of the show that we're seeing, the five-year mission's been going on for quite a while. I don't know if this has ever been expanded upon in any of the expanded universe novels. I know that DC did a Star Trek annual number one that had an adventure take place before Where No Man Has Gone Before, which had Mitchell and Kelso and all of that lot, and Dr. Piper in it, as well as Dr. McCoy, but they didn't explain how big of a gap there was. It certainly didn't seem like there was a few years. Anyway, after the crew leave the briefing room, Spock reveals that he's secretly mind-melded with Mitchell, and we learned that there was no consciousness there, no sentience of any kind. Mitchell poses an immediate threat to the ship and crew. Kirk, as Spock sees it, has two choices. One, leave him on Delta Vega, stranded. Or two, kill him. Kill him whilst he still can. Issue one ends here, which is almost the exact midpoint of the show. 
Viewed as a comic book take on the TV episode through the filter of the 09 reboot, this was an enjoyable issue. It does the exact same job as the TV show in that it sets up the characters and the relationships and establishes the parameters of the show. It loses points for the editing. Almost all of the good character stuff is lost in this version of the tale, for all the reasons that I dislike the movie. In their efforts to turn the show into a younger, more hip version of a classic, the producers have forgotten that what made the old show work, in addition to brilliant, mad sci-fi themes, which were largely new to US TV at that point, was the characterisation. Spock suggesting Kirk kill one of his oldest friends is powerful stuff, fantastically played in the show by Shatner and Nimoy. Here, due to the aforementioned de-aging of the casts, there's none of that backstory. And whilst Johnson tries hard to imbue this with some pathos, he's gutted the script too much for it, for it to really work. I still enjoyed reading this as a comic, though. Johnson captures the voices of the characters well, and this can be read in Shatner and Nimoy's voices just as easily as it can be read in Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto's. I did like seeing the difference the new timeline has wrought on the show and what ramifications this has had, and the art is clean and engaging. The issue has an IDW words thing where they plug new books, and similar to an old bullpen bulletins page where they tell you what books are out this month, there's an advert for the new Ghostbusters comic, which I've never read, an advert for Suicide Girls, which is a, apparently a comic collecting the smash cult hit from Missy Suicide Steve Niles, Breyer and Zane Grant, David Hahn and Cameron Stewart, most of whom I've never heard of, apart from Steve Niles, who did 30 Days of Night. And there's a plug for Locking Key, and a plug for Jurassic Park. So there's no adverts in this that aren't plugging IDW's books. Godzilla gets a plug as well. So Luke Giaconetti will be happy about that. So I don't know how IDW makes their money, other than by charging nearly $4 for a comic book. Um, we'll have a quick break there, while we plug somebody else's show, because we've not done that for a while. And we'll be right back. Clouds of war gather ominously over Europe. The Great Depression grips the world. But one globe-trotting archaeologist's thirst for adventure and discovery remains undaunted by his times. Stan Lee presents... The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, now a regular feature on Star Wars Monthly Monday, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. And we're back. Um, I wanted to do Indiana Jones 1 and 2. Scott Gardner's beat me to it again. Damn him. Damn him all to hell. Uh, issue 2 came out around the end of October 2011. I couldn't find an exact date on the internet. Uh, again, the cover is an excellent Tim Bradstreet number of Kirk, looking like Chris Pine, and Mitchell, looking like Gary Lockwood, with blueprints for the shuttlecraft and the Enterprise orbiting Delta Vega and Spot, looking like Zachary Quinter. Uh, it's a damn fine cover. It seems a bit incongruous to have Gary Mitchell looking like Gary Lockwood, whilst Kirk and Spot look like the new guys, but, you know. I wonder if they had to pay Gary Lockwood to have his likeness. I wonder how that works. Anyway. It's pretty damn good. Uh, the variant covers for this issue had pencils only variant of the cover for people who may have thought that he was just photoshopping this. No, pencils. 
are on the back page. Um, there's a photo cover of Quinto, which does absolutely nothing for me. Uh, but there's a wonderful enlisting Starfleet propaganda cover by Joe Coronin. Cross the final frontier in lots of shots of the Enterprise and the Starfleet emblem in the car. Reminding me a bit of the propaganda stuff from Starship Troopers. Which is a film I quite enjoy, even though it's dopey as hell. Uh, anyway, picking up from where the last issue left off, we're given the star date of 1313.1, the same as the show, and Kirk, Spock and McCoy head to see Gary. Gary senses what Spock is thinking. Kill him now, Spock! And he suspects that this may be the best course of action. He holds Kirk and Spock off with an Enpropalpatine-style electroshock, and McCoy injects him with enough sedative to knock out the Klingon Empire. In the show, this scene is a lot longer and it's Kirk, Spock and Dana, not McCoy. Mitchell's a lot more menacing and not so much the comic book villain that he is in the comic. But being a comic book villain in a comic, I suppose, works. Kind of. Anyway, the crew beam down to Delta Vega. I did notice a lovely touch in the remastered episode that the CGI artists have animated the clouds on the matte painting of Delta Vega. I thought that was really quite nice. Very subtle touch. One of the, the examples of the, the people who did the remastering of the Star Trek episodes, not urinating all over the work that people used to do. Um, Kirk arranges to place a force field around the crew quarters on Delta Vega and leaves Mitchell behind. Mitchell awakens and says that Spock trapped Kirk on Delta Vega before, a different Delta Vega, a continuity reference to the movie, and that command and compassion is a fool's mixture, a direct quote from the TV show. He breaks out easily and palpatines Kirk and Spock, on the way out, he comes across Kelso, who goes for his phaser. Mitchell muses that we're all good friends once, him and Kelso and Kirk, just before he forces Kelso to turn the phaser on himself and pulls the trigger. Uh, this is, credit where credit is due, a lot more chilling in the comic than it is in the TV show. The episode has Kelso killed whilst Mitchell is still in his cell and he murders him from afar because Kirk has had Kelso rig a self-destruct mechanism so that he can blow the planet up if Mitchell gets out while everyone is beaming back to the ship. That subplot is completely absent from the comic book. In the comic, Mitchell murders Kelso in cold blood and for no reason. Kelso crying as Mitchell forcing him to kill himself is a very unsettling moment in the story, and arguably it makes this version of Mitchell completely without redemption. Whereas the TV episode strives to show that Mitchell is completely submerged by whatever it is that's affecting him. In the few instances where they manage to subdue the power, Mitchell's eyes return to normal and he begs with Kirk to help him. There's none of that in the comic. Mitchell is much more of an out-and-out -out villain here than he was in the TV show. Mitchell escapes, and Scotty tells Kirk what happened. Why Mitchell didn't kill Kirk and Spock at this point isn't explained in either the comic or the TV show. Kirk orders Spock to give him his phaser rifle and tells him to leave. If he doesn't return, Spock is to order the planet quarantined and get the hell out of Dodge. Again, more subtle, but I think important differences. In the TV show, Dr. Piper wakes up Kirk, and Kirk says to leave Spock unconscious until he's gone after Mitchell, as Spock wouldn't let him go alone, which is much more in keeping with the character that's been established in the TV episode. He gives Piper pretty much the same orders he gives Spock in the comic, except if Kirk doesn't return, they are to pelt the planet with lethal doses of neutron radiation. Again, 
Kirk doesn't want to kill Mitchell, but will use lethal force if necessary. In the comic, Kirk is much more of a passive observer rather than a take-charge commander. Kirk follows Mitchell through the hills. He regales Kirk with glimpses of his past, of time spent wasting his life in bar fights whilst Mitchell was already in the academy, of sweating in exams wishing Mitchell was there to slip in the answers. He forces Kirk to beg for forgiveness while taunting him that he will be taking command of the ship. Captain Gary Mitchell. Mitchell likes the sound of that. Of all the changes in the adaptation, this is the one that goals the most. In the new Trek universe, Kirk's a cheater who relied on Mitchell to get him through tests. Arguably, this Kirk isn't command material. In the show, Kirk is described by Mitchell as being a stack of books with legs. He's a smart cookie who's earned everything that he's got. He got to the command chair through hard work, sacrifice and determination. New Kirk is a wastrel who got lucky. And is this really the message we're sending kids today in our heroic fiction? That you don't get to a place by hard work and determination and perseverance, but by being pretty and being lucky? It's said that our science fiction is a reflection on us today rather than a true exploration of the future. And if this is true, then I believe that it is, then perhaps New Trek is a decent reflection on the values of now, just as Old Trek was a reflection on the values of then. Personally, I don't think it's a change for the better. Uh, it's also lazy writing. Because we all know who the characters are, as the audience, the writers of Trek 09 don't bother to write the characters, they just give us the broad strokes, the idea of the character and what we know them to be like, even if it's inaccurate, and they let the audience fill in the blanks. But by altering everything, they are telling us nothing new or different, or they're not, or they're not even telling us anything that we know. Kirk, in the 2009 movie, is the caricature Kirk from the mass media interpretation of the character. He's not the Kirk from the actual show. Granted, William Shatner is just as, as culpable in promoting this image of Kirk as being a risk-taking cowboy who just kisses every woman that he meets. But that's not actually the Kirk from the television show. Kirk was a lot deeper than that. Anyway, the comic continues. Spock appears from nowhere, nerve pinches Gary. For reasons not adequately explained, Mitchell's eyes return to normal and he begs Kirk to kill him. Kirk shoots him at point-blank range with the phaser gun, then falls down, weeping. Uh, the TV ending is far superior. Dana, who has now succumbed to the same fate as Mitchell because of her IESP rating, turns on Mitchell and weakens him with her own power, sacrificing her life to do so. With Mitchell weakened, Kirk fights him physically and verbally, finally turning the tables and burying him alive in the grave he prepared for Kirk. It's got everything. It's got action, excitement, irony, interesting characters, a good central science fiction idea, a powerful subtext about the nature of God, if you want to read that deeply into it, and the very embodiment of the dangers of absolute power, all wrapped up in a thoroughly enjoyable parable about what it means to be human. It's not only Star Trek at its best, but one of the single best television pilots ever committed to celluloid. In contrast... The comic has Kirk have to be bailed out by Spock and have him crying at the end. There's no subtext, all the best character moments are excised, and even the ending, where Kirk shoots Mitchell whilst looking him in the eye, has none of the pathos of the original. The comic concludes with a little coda, where Kirk sits in the briefing room watching the coffins of Kelso and Mitchell spin by outside, a burial in space. His log entry complains of the terrible searing pain he has had to endure because the lives of his crew depend on him. 
Spock enters and asks if Kirk would like a game of chess. Mitchell said he was quite proficient. Kirk says that he would like that as the Enterprise warps away to another adventure. The episode's coda is completely different, yet oddly more touching. Back on the bridge, Kirk logs commendations for Dana and Mitchell, yet oddly not Kelso, who seems to be the Chewbacca of this story, largely forgotten he doesn't even get a medal, noting that they didn't ask for what happened to them. Spock notes that he felt for them as well. Kirk looks at him before acknowledging that there may be hope for him yet. It's a very downbeat yet hopeful ending, which the comic tries to emulate moderately successfully. Both stories offer up a small step in the road to Kirk and Spock becoming friends that they will over the years. Of course, New Trek has yet to play that out, but relies on the fact that we know this will happen because Star Trek's passed over into American mythology at this point. Um, this seemed like a really good idea at the time, comparing the, the comic to the TV episode, but there's a part of me that, that kind of wishes I hadn't done it. I wanted to explain why I was enjoying the comics more than the 2009 movie, which I wasn't a huge fan of. But then I got the idea of comparing the episode it was adapting to the comic, and unfortunately that's where it all fell apart. The episode, and the series in general, is much better than the 2009 reboot, and the episode is far superior to this comic. I really liked this book when I read it as a standalone adventure, but I think the worst thing I could have done is watch the show and then read the comics. I guess what I'm saying is if, you, if your only knowledge of Star Trek is that movie, or the public perception of the show, then get a hold of the DVD releases, the remastered ones, if you can't judge the effects contextually, and watch the first 13 episodes. They are so different to what you think Star Trek is, and, you know, there's a reason that it became a phenomenon. If you like the movie but have an aversion to old TV shows for some reason, and I know some people do, then you may like this comic a bit more than I did. Um, it's got another one of those bullpen bulletins type things at the back where they plug 30 Days of Night and some Lovecraft books and Bob Powell's Terror. Um, and Wallywood Stories Artist Edition. These artist editions that IDW are putting out are really good. They've just done a John Romita Spider-Man one. And what it does, it just features the original art on an oversized book. It's really big. They're really expensive. But I suppose they're worth it if you like the artist. There's a big chunk at the back of this book, an 11-page preview for Chris Robeson and Rich Ellis's memorial, which I haven't read, so I don't know if it's any good. But Chris Robeson did a pretty decent job on Superman Grounded. Um, and then there's adverts for the other covers and another advert for Chris Robeson's memorial, which they see, really seem to be getting behind. And that's it for this week's episode. I know it's a short one. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, I did have to put this one out quickly so we didn't miss a week. Uh, next week we'll be back to normal, but as I'm recording this, a good four weeks, maybe more, in advance of it actually going up. I have no idea what next week's show will be, but hopefully Michael will be back because I haven't knocked this one out down and dirty. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back with more comic book goodness next week. Bye-bye. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, and all opinions expressed by Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money for this. 
much to the chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday at apleyland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the second name. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.